Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB, aka Danielle Bezalel. Let's get into it. Episode two of the podcast is all about abortion. If you take away one thing from this episode, let it be that abortion is still legal in all 50 states. But while it may be technically legal, abortion access is so much harder for some than others. It's really important that we don't let propellers of the anti-choice movement defeat us when the fight for abortion access needs to be stronger now more than ever. We have an array of amazing guests for this episode. First is Robin Marty. Robin is a freelance reporter and the author of the new book, Handbook for a Post-Roe America, a guide for what to do if and when Roe is overturned and states make abortion illegal. We also have Yvka Pierre. Yvka works as litigation counsel for If, When, How, where she litigates civil and criminal defense cases. She's a former public defender who has been involved in justice-driven work for a decade. And finally, we have Amelia Bono. Amelia is the founding director of Shout Your Abortion, a movement dedicated to broadening the discourse surrounding abortion through art, media, and real-life events all over the country. As the beloved Black Eyed Peas would say, let's get it started with Robin. So thanks again, Robin, for being on the podcast. Uh, We would love to hear a little bit about you and hear how you became passionate about writing about abortion. Sure. So um, I actually started out in marketing, which is really weird when I think about it, because I used to be a corporate cog in a lot of ways. (laughs) And by working in an investment banking firm, I realized really quickly that it was a very conservative, very oppressive place to be. And so that's kind of how I found my way into politics. I started out doing an anonymous blog on politics. And it grew into a point where I ended up working for a group called the Center for Independent Media in um, Washington, D.C. And I helped them set up a progressive blog out here in Minnesota, where I live. And through that, I got further into politics and I started to do more on abortion rights. But it didn't really resonate with me until... I had a missed miscarriage. Um, I had had one child and we were trying to have a second and I thought we were pregnant and I went into the doctor for my 12-week checkup and that was when I found out that the fetus had actually stopped developing at around eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, But my body didn't know that. My body still thought I was pregnant. I had all of the pregnancy symptoms. Everything seemed completely normal. But there was this fetus inside of me that was never going to get develop anymore. It was there and there was no ability for me to do anything to remove it. Um, and that was when I found out that my doctor did not know how to do a DNC. Um, wow. So there I was with uh, with an OB that did not do DNCs, and I had either to continue to wait with this thing inside of me and just hope that eventually it would pass on its own and that I would not get sepsis in the process, or I had to go seek out a new doctor that I'd never had a relationship with before in order to have this doctor be able to perform a DNC on me so that I could move on with the rest of my life and finish this chapter. All right, y'all, I had to go to YouTube to really figure out the pronunciation for this, but here it goes. A DNC, or dilation and curatage, 
is a procedure by which the cervix is dilated and an instrument is used to empty the uterus. As Robin's story exemplifies, the procedure is used for both voluntary abortions and to provide miscarriage care. That was the moment where I've never actually had an abortion, but I finally understood what it was like to have something inside of you and know that you could not proceed, you could not go anywhere. All you needed was this medical gatekeeper to allow your life to return to normal. And calling through, finding out doctors, I ended up having a DNC in a hospital on Halloween, of all things. And it was this moment where I finally had this aha. And the thing is, looking back on this now, and a lot of this is the stigma that we know about when it comes to abortion and how there's good health care and there's abortion and somehow the two things do not combine, it never even occurred to me to contact an abortion clinic. And we have them in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, very nearby me. Instead, I went to a hospital, to an emergency room. Um, it was about $2,000 out of pocket because of oh our insurance costs. And this was all happening just when we were having the Affordable Care Act debate. So this actually happened right before Stupac decided to put on the bill that said that abortion should not be covered in any of the health and health plans that would be on the ACA exchanges. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first thing that I ever wrote about abortion was this idea of if I had gone in and my abortion was officially covered, although I still had to pay out of pocket because of the deductible. But under Bill or under Bart Stupak's bill, would that mean that nobody could have a DNC? And the response was really interesting because everybody would say to me, "Well, it doesn't matter because in your case, this was not an abortion." And mm. I, I mean, looking at my records, it said that I had an abortion in the in the medical records. Um, it was the exact same procedure. It was the exact same removal of a fetus. It was the exact same blood. It was right. everything. The crashing hormones. There was literally nothing different about what I was doing. And if you had said, "Okay, well, a person who is pregnant has to carry to term no matter what," and the body, when the body decides that that baby is ready to come, then that's when that's when the pregnancy is over, then yes, I had an abortion because I medically intervened to end this pregnancy before my body said it was done. Mm -hmm. So that was the moment, that big aha moment for me. And so from that, I, I, like I said, I wrote that first piece for, at the time it was called RH Reality Check, but it became Rewire News. And they, that just fascinated me. And so this was right before 2010, And once the Tea Party election happened, I started tracking for Rewire all of the different bills that were coming up 2011 and on that were passing in all these different state legislatures. Because a lot of people are looking at the bills that are happening right now, the heartbeat bans that are in Kentucky, Ohio, everywhere else, the total abortion ban in Alabama. And they're like, how did this all come about so fast? But this wasn't fast. This has been in place since 2011. These Mm -hmm. bills have been introduced over and over and over again. And a lot of times they've been killed off, but a lot of them exist and have been blocked in court prior to this. So this is nothing new. This has been going on for almost a decade. And it's just now everybody's aware that it's happening. Right. Like the news is picking it up more and younger people are kind of like hearing about it a little more than they used to, maybe. Exactly. And the reason why it's so much more concerning this go around than it was in 2013, which was when I wrote my last book, is the idea that 
before this, we always thought that we had the fail-safe of the Supreme Court to save us. Um, and so when the anti-abortion movement was making these bills, they were making them slightly more moderate because they were trying to appeal to Anthony Kennedy because they wanted Kennedy, who was the moderate centrist vote, to find a way to justify banning abortion and upholding these bills. Once Trump was elected, once Scalia was replaced with Gorsuch, and then once Brett Kavanaugh was put in to replace Kennedy, then it was all hold barred. There was no longer any sort of concern about that. We went from 2016, where we thought that we might have the Supreme Court, and where we saw whole women's health, the Heller said, ruled in our favor, to now we don't even know if Roe v. Wade could be upheld. And so that's why everything has become so much more extreme, so much more fast, and why we no longer believe that things are going to be stopped before they come to their full conclusion. Absolutely, yeah. And that's a perfect segue for our next question, which is about your book, Handbook for a Post-Roe America. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit about, like, a synopsis of kind of what it tells your readers and uh, and kind of what you hope to, to gain from, from the readership there. Sure. So it's actually kind of ironic that we're doing this right now because I went back to my emails today, and this is really close to the one-year anniversary of the book even coming into existence. So Handbook for a Post-Roe America was kind of this emergency guide that popped out of my head. Um, it was June 26th, and June 26th of 2018 was the day that Anthony Kennedy announced that he would be retiring from the Supreme Court, and we knew that Donald Trump was going to be able to put another person on the Supreme Court, and that that likely meant that Roe would be overturned. And the moment that that announcement came out, and I'm a huge social media person. You can find me on Twitter, Robin Marty, on Twitter all the time. <laughs> give her a follow. Give her a follow. <laughs> I'm, I'm not always inspiring, but I will give you something to think about. Um, and the moment that we learned that Kennedy was retiring, all of a sudden Twitter flooded with all of these people saying, Roe is going to be overturned. I'm going to give a bunch of money to Planned Parenthood, and I'm going to stockpile emergency contraception. And both of these are not bad ideas in and of themselves, but when it comes to actual supporting of abortion access that still exists, they're really not the way to go. Um, Planned Parenthood is a wonderful organization, but if you give money to a Planned Parenthood national, you can't guarantee that they're going to get to the states that still have clinics that are open. When we look at the states that have one clinic left right now, only two of those are states with Planned Parenthoods operating in them. Um, Kentucky does not have a Planned Parenthood in it. North Dakota does not have a Planned Parenthood in it. Uh, most of the states that are operating that are just one clinic or even just a few clinics, like if you look at Alabama, there is no Planned Parenthood that is offering abortion in Alabama right now. Those are all entirely independent providers. So to keep abortion accessible, giving to Planned Parenthood, especially to Planned Parenthood National, is not the best use of your money. You want to make sure that you give it to local organizations on the ground and local independent clinics on the ground. Always, and that's like the biggest thing that any person can take away from this, from this whole segment is if you are doing your work, do it locally because that is the most impactful. So I started, of course, because I'm known for my Twitter tirades, I started giving this list of all of these different things that a person could do that is far more helpful when it comes to trying to keep abortion accessible. So give to your local organization, give to abortion funds, 
Um, if you are going to quote unquote stockpile emergency contraception, get a couple of packages for yourself or so that somebody that you know can come and get it from you. But don't buy it off the shelves because if you buy it off the shelves, then you're going to take it away for people who have actual emergencies and nobody's right. going to wander up to a stranger and say, Hey, do you happen to have emergency contraception? I really <laughs> not like it a right tampon. Now. Not yeah, like a I tampon. Can I borrow your EC? I'm sure you have them in your purse. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad idea to have some in your purse, but you're right. not going to have a whole bunch of it. And strangers, maybe someday we'll get to a point where strangers can walk up to each other and ask for it. But we're not there right now, obviously. Right. So I did all of this. And like I said, this was the end of June. And Huffington Post contacted me and was like, that's a great list of resources. Can you put it into an article for us? So I put it up on on Huffington Post, and it was viewed, I think, 46,000 times. Oh, my God. 24 hours. Yeah, it was huge. And so an agent said, you know, I think that's a book proposal. Can you write a book proposal really fast? I'm like, okay, sure. I'm not doing anything else. So 24 <laughs> hours later, I had a book proposal. And then I sent it into this publisher who is the same publisher who in – 1992 produced a book called A Women's, a Women's Book of Choices by Carol Downer. And Carol Downer's name is back in the news now because she was one of the original feminists who was doing um, menstrual extraction back in the 70s before Roe v. Wade was decided and before abortion was legal. And so she had a big section in her book about how to do your own menstrual extractions. So this group, this publisher was like, yeah, this is exactly the sort of thing we do. Um, can you write the book in three months so that we can get it published for the anniversary of Roe? Oh, wow. Okay. You're on a timeline so, now, I guess. Basically. So at, like I'm saying, it was a year ago that this book was not even written. And now it's been out for almost six months. So that's how immediate and how desperate this need is. So this right. book is literally just a walkthrough of everything that you can do right now, both legally and outside of legal channels, in order to make sure that abortion is safe and accessible for as many people as possible. So it's a variety of comfort levels, but also helping people kind of work out of their comfort zones to figure out, is the need enough that you are willing to make some sacrifices in order to do it. So there's something in it for everybody, just from who are your local organizations on the ground that you can support, either financially or you can volunteer for, what are individual actions that a person can take in order to make sure that abortion clinics can stay open. And it's beyond just things like get involved in your legislature, run for office. Those are always good things, but it's things like, hey, are you making sure that you're supporting businesses that are located near abortion clinics? Because a lot of times um, anti-abortion activists will pressure these businesses to try and say, we don't want this clinic here anymore and force them to close. So there's all sorts of different things you can do, but there's also sections that understand that even now we have been living in a post-row world for many, many communities on in the United States for people who are undocumented, for people who are poor, um, for people who don't have health care coverage. There are so many people right now who already aren't able to access abortion. And that's only going to get worse whether it's legal or not. And mm -hmm. so what are steps that can be taken in order to do abortion safely and then try and protect oneself as legally as possible in order to do self-managed care? Because we know that self-managed care is not dangerous. We know physically it's not dangerous. We know that the thing that is dangerous about it is the fact that too many people who would undergo it, if they are worried that they're having a complication in a rare case that they are, they're afraid to go to hospitals because they might get arrested. 
And right. that's where it becomes dangerous. So yeah. this isn't even, we see a lot of information online about how to do self-managed care, but there isn't a lot of information out there about how the steps that need to be taken in order to make sure that you're not leaving an email trail, to make sure that certain people don't know about it, um, what sort of questions and answers might happen and how to talk to people in hospitals to make sure that if you do go in because you think that there's something wrong, um, you don't have to tell somebody that you took medication because it doesn't show up anywhere and it doesn't have any symptoms that are different from the standard miscarriage. So this is all about how to protect oneself legally as much as possible when self-managing your own care as well. Right. So it, we need to get information out about what it actually feels like, but we also need to get information out about should there be a complication, what should a person say? And one of the things that I tell people when I'm doing book tour is that if a person has done has managed their own abortion at home or done anything that might have had any sort of pregnancy complication, because this information is all also just good for the fact that we're looking at states like Alabama where people who are miscarrying are going to get looked at as suspected of having an abortion. So when a person is having a bad pregnancy outcome and is going into the hospital for any way, shape, or form, the only things they need to say is, I'm pregnant, I think I'm having a miscarriage, and I'm scared. Um, mm. When you say those three things, first of all, doctors should not be questioning you about, did you take anything? Did you do anything that might have caused this? That is not their business. That is not something that they need to have in order to provide care for you, whether you're miscarrying or not. And when you say, I am scared, that kind of puts them into this place where all of a sudden they're kind of paternalistic again. And so they're like, now this person is reacting properly. I want to take care of them. And so it really alleviates a lot of suspicion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good kind of three-sentence phrase of, I'm, I'm say it one more time. I'm pregnant. I'm, I'm miscarrying. pregnant. I think I'm miscarrying and I'm scared. I'm scared. Yeah. And I'm scared is the thing that shuts down the conversation because when somebody is scared, then nobody wants to push them. Right. Totally makes sense. If we could back up a little bit and just kind of understand a little bit more of how does medication abortion work medically? Like how many pills do you have to take? How long right. does it take? Like can you walk us through maybe the beginning un until the point where they go to the hospital potentially if something goes wrong? When it comes to medication abortion and understand that we, there's a couple of different ways that a medication abortion would be done and is done both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. and in, or in abortion clinics, at home, at home, deal mail order. There's all these different ways that they happen. But the two basic ways that things will happen is if a person is doing a medication abortion, there would be a set of pills. Um, and one is the misoprostol. And that, what that does is it stops progesterone from, from keeping the fetus developing, the embryo or the fetus developing. So misoprostol, which would be the six pills that come with it, um, will be what a person takes that causes contractions to expel the fetus. Like if a person were self-managing their abortions and there's places where right now, even currently, that medication can be obtained online and Plan C has a great website plancy.org, oh, plancypills.org, I believe it's called, or you can just Google Plancy. So a person would take the misopristone and then wait, and there are instructions either up on my website um, or also up on Women on Waves. Women on Web is the sister organization for aid access, and there's also a 
wonderful website called Women Help Women. And Women Help Women is a great website because not only does it give all of the instructions for how a self-medicated abortion would be done, um, but it also provides a secure line and email line that a person can contact in order to ask any questions should they have already begun the process of an abortion so that they can say, um, I'm bleeding X amount, is this normal? Or mm-hmm. I'm feeling chills, is this normal? My temperature is X, is this normal? So this is a place where they can contact and ask medical in- questions about the ongoing process without any sort of worry about legal jeopardy. So I highly recommend this as, as something that a person can reach out to should they decide to manage their own abortion. Um, and then it takes anywhere from 24 to 48 hours for the actual process of of expelling the fetus. So you will have a miscarriage. It will start out as cramps. It will get more crampy. Um, blood will happen. I've talked to a lot of people who have had medication abortions that they've done them completely legally through um, different clinics, and it's all the same process, and it feels like a person is having a miscarriage. So cramps will get closer, they will get more painful, they will start to feel like you will be bleeding, you will feel very nauseous. Um, Usually that part of the process, depending on how pregnant you are, only takes maybe an hour to a couple of hours, Um, and then you will you will basically, it feels like you're having a really, really bad poop. And sorry, I have kids, so we'll say poop. <laughs> no, no, um, you can say poop as I many times as you want on this all podcast. Right, so it's like taking a really, really, really bad, painful, painful poop. Okay, so I think there are a lot of misconceptions about like the current kind of abortion bans and kind of mm-hmm. what people are, are able to currently access. Take like Alabama, for example, because I think that one, that state has been in the news a lot lately and people kind of have, have heard that state in terms of, of this kind of conversation. But how can people in states where like, like Alabama, where abortion is functionally banned or otherwise inaccessible, still have an abortion? Would you say that medical option is kind of the the best and only option or what are other potential options? Okay. So what I would say is at this point, every state in the United States has at least one abortion clinic and every single extreme abortion ban, so total bans, heartbeat bans, which are essentially abortion bans, um, anything that happens in the first trimester, every, every one of those bills has been blocked in a court so far. There's not a single one that has been put into effect. And the most recent is in Ohio, where the heartbeat ban in Ohio was now just blocked by a court. So they are all working their way through different state courts, different federal courts, different circuit courts. And at this point, not a single one of them has been upheld by a court. They have all been blocked until it can be resolved. That's great news. Yes. So you can get an abortion in the first trimester in absolutely every state in the United States. So that is very important. Technically, right? And then there's the accessibility issue. Right. Okay. Yeah. That does not include accessibility. So Mm -hmm. when it comes to talking about how people can access abortion in a state like we'll take Alabama, Alabama has three clinics that are functioning right now. They're in three different cities in Alabama. Alabama is allowed to do abortions up until 20 weeks. One clinic does them till 20 weeks. The other two only do it in the first trimester. 
So when we are looking at Alabama people needing access, there are two ways that we can do it. And one is either to make sure that abortion funds and abortion support groups are getting funding to the people who need to travel to these different clinics. And I just did a piece for a group called Talk Poverty, which is with the Center for American Progress. And it was about how when you look at states like Alabama or Mississippi or Missouri, when we see that there's almost no abortion access, these are also states that have almost no transportation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So we don't have trains that go back and forth from city to city. We don't have light rails. We barely even have functional local buses in these mm-hmm. cities because the bus systems themselves are being used to segregate out communities and make sure that people can't get into the good neighborhoods and such and mm-hmm. so forth. So when it comes to getting an abortion in Alabama, it may cost roughly $500 to get a first trimester abortion in Alabama, but then it could cost another $1,000 just to be able to get to the clinic to have to stay overnight because Alabama Alabama has a 48-hour in-person rule. Um, then childcare, all these other things. So the act of actually getting to an abortion clinic to have the abortion will be as much, if not more, than having the abortion itself. So one of the things that I really encourage people so that we can have people getting legal abortions is to give as much as they can financially to practical support groups that are on the ground in these states. So in Alabama, that's the Yellowhammer Fund. Um, when we're looking at Mississippi, that's Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. All of these things are making sure that people can get to clinics in order to access their care. But a lot of people obviously can't get to clinics, and that's where we get into self-managed abortion care. And obviously, it's a lot more legally dangerous, even though it's not um, physically dangerous. When it comes to looking at Roe being overturned, because I firmly believe that Roe is going to be overturned, and my guess is that it's going to happen sometime after the 2020 election. I don't think Mm. it's going to happen before that because they want to try and get Trump reelected, and this is the easiest way for that to happen. But after that, it it doesn't matter whether Trump is reelected or not reelected because the Supreme Court is gone for the next 50 years. Not to be really pessimistic. God, but that that's is how terrifying, it is. Robin. I know. <laughs> I'm so much fun in interviews. Um, <laughs> and so, so what we need to understand is as we go forward, we need to figure out how we are going to reintroduce the concept of abortion access to the entire country with it not being this idea that abortion clinics should be able to provide abortion because that's where we are right now. Right now we're at should doctors be put in jail for providing abortions outside of legal outside of legal rules, um, restrictions, all of that? But in order to have abortion truly accessible for as many people as possible, it needs to be, does a person have a legal right to an abortion? Does a person have a legal right to do their own abortion? Does a person have a legal right to have an abortion accessible to them? Because as long as we keep doctors and clinics as the gatekeepers to accessible legal abortion, then this is always going to be a problem because they'll always be closing clinics or even if they're not closing clinics, convincing people not to take up abortion as a, as a specialty in their medical care, um, keeping abortion annexed from the rest of medical endeavors, there's always going to be this gatekeeper role that is going to happen as long as abortion is considered something that happens in clinics. But there is no reason why if a person wants to just simply manage their own miscarriage, they can't do it themselves. And that's what we have to fight for. Are you a cancer survivor or do you know someone who is? 
Earlier severe menopause and painful vaginal sex can often be an undiscussed and unexpected side effect to cancer treatment. Luckily, Millie can help. Millie is the gentlest dilator on the market with user-controlled in-vagina expansion, enabling gradual increases in size with only one insertion. Getting better is hard. Don't shortchange your progress. More than 50% of sexually inactive Millie users return to sex within three months of using Millie, with 30% reduction in pain and anxiety. Use Millie to have more pleasurable sex and break your cycle of pain. Go to www.millimedical.com to check it out. Our graphic illustrator is Alana from Imperium Illustrations. Alana specializes in custom, illustrative cover art for books, music albums, and podcasts. She captures your story's soul and amplifies your voice in meaningful design. You can check out her latest projects at imperiumillustrations.com.au. Hello, Ivka. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How about you? It's great. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, Cool. So we're going to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your organization, if, when, how, and what you do in your role there. Okay. So if, when, how is a legal services organization um, that works with the end goal of ending reproductive oppression, which is a very big bite and we are not doing it on our own. So our work works through five modalities, which means the five ways that we are trying to achieve that end goal, which is through litigation, training, organizing, advocacy, and research. And we're currently doing that work through five strategic strategic initiatives, which is focusing on eliminating welfare family caps, enhancing birth options and experiences, overturning Harris versus McRae, eliminating parental involvement laws and judicial bypass laws. And where a lot of my work resides is decriminalizing self-managed abortion, as well as supported self-managed abortion. That's a whole lot of stuff. That's, like I said, it's a big bite. It's, right? a, it's a handful, <laughs> I'd say. Um, yeah. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So how long have you all been around? So back in March of 2019, if, when, how, and its past origin and a group called the SEA Legal Team, the Self-Induced Abortion Legal Team, kind of, not kind of, absolutely, (laughs) joined their forces together to form what is now If, When, How. Um, When I say it, I say it as if there's an exclamation point because it's a new third entity that didn't exist before. So If, When, How was predominantly, it had a different name once upon a time, but it, it got founded on law school campuses. It was students, law school students that were really passionate about helping folks in the reproductive sphere, right? Not, um, and focusing on that work. So there's chapters all over um, the United States at different law schools that are students that are focused on reproductive justice. See, a legal team was born out of the issue of self-managed abortion, um, started out as a coalition of folks at different organizations that were working on this issue that quite frankly, no one wanted to touch. It wasn't a thing that folks were talking about as much Too five, six years ago. Or? I think it was something that was difficult to wrap around um, with what the legal landscape looked like, with what folks were focusing on and you know what the strategic initiatives were at the time. But I think now 
as we're seeing the populations that we're intending to serve, which are people that want to access abortions in whatever way they want to access them, we are now seeing a lot more focus, good focus, on how do we best support people, right? How do we help folks get to their best yes? How do we help folks fight reproductive oppression without being the mouthpiece, right? How are we serving as being the microphone? What does so, that mean, get, getting folks to their best yes? I haven't heard that expression. Right. Um, so there's no ideal way to have an abortion, right? Like there's no ideal way to talk about reproductive care um, because what is ideal for me would not be ideal for you, would not be ideal for someone that's gender non-conforming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when you start superimposing folks' identities over their choices, right? So when we're talking about getting folks to their best, yes, it's how can we activate the rights that you have in the law to work for what your end goal is, right? So that's the way that I think about it. I love it. So in the news, we, we see that a few weeks back, we saw the spectacle of Marche Jones um, and her arrest and indictment. Also, I'm curious to hear, in your eyes, how are the recent abortion bans connected to criminalization of pregnant people? And finally, can you talk about the case of Pervy Patel? Sure. Um, criminalizing people for their pregnancy outcomes. So when we start talking about criminalization, I think the way that I put it is that criminalization is a label, right, that gets attached to a person, and they are closer and further away from that label depending on what intersections they happen to occupy. Um, so, and there are many aspects to the phenomenon of criminalizing people for their pregnancy outcomes, but a few of them, there's the racism that fuels over policing, right, and mass incarceration. Um, that subjects people, particularly black and brown people, to assumptions of criminality for their behavior. There's extra surveillance of police that's more likely in certain communities, right? Specifically that of black and brown people, specifically that of trans and gender non-conforming communities um, that doesn't exist in other communities. Um, and then there's other systems that we all subscribe to without necessarily thinking of them, right? Like the child welfare, child welfare systems that exist to protect children, quote unquote, right? But have been used throughout, you know, since their inception in our society to punish poor people, mm. to punish people of color, um, for not behaving in ways that um, are deemed as acceptable, you know, acceptable as majority culture um, has so described them, right? So there's that. And then we have the rest of it. Right. Talking about the drug war, the war on drugs, right? So that was used to justify militarization of police, right? That allowed us to have military weapons being brought into our communities under the guise of like, we're gonna stop the war on drugs, mm. which now, years later, there's been so much work done on that that was like, hmm, maybe that was not the right way for us to go, <laughs> Yeah, right? maybe not, maybe not. Yeah, but then we still have the leftover vestiges of it, which is the increased surveillance of people, the erosion of what privacy actually looks like mm. and what we expect privacy to look like, and thinking about the increase of incarceration of women and femmes, right? Um, in the United States, I think the numbers are, it's grown like by eight times the population of incarcerated women since the 1980s, since the inception of the war on drugs. So when you have that whole big pot 
And then you start thinking about what we think about privacy. How do we think about pregnancy and pregnant people? What society feels is ownership of pregnant bodies? And then you end up with cases like that of Pervy Patel, right? You end up, and those of us that uh, I think in the reproductive justice rights health communities know quite a bit about this case, but not everybody does. Pervy Patel, um, was a woman that was arrested in Indiana for allegedly terminating her own pregnancy with pills that she ordered online. Um, she was tried and convicted of two crimes. So the first crime was feticide, and the allegation there was that she terminated her pregnancy. And the second charge was neglect of a dependent child, which alleged that um, she failed to get medical care for a premature living newborn. And I think it's important to like pause and look at what these two charges are saying. One says that you terminated a pregnancy, right? right? And the other one says that you failed to care for a living child. And those two things would seem as if they're at odds, right? And sh you should not be able to be convicted for those two crimes at the same time. Um, but she was. Um, and she was also sentenced to 20 years in prison. And then that was a shocking sentence. Now it's a shocking sentence. And there was a big legal team that worked on this case. This went up for appeal and it came back down with uh, the top charge to feticide charge being reversed, meaning that that charge went away, but the other charge remained, the neglect of a dependent remained. Um, and this case kind of, it, it galvanized a lot of communities, right? Uh, and there was a large outcry from RJ movement leaders, um, particularly women of color and Asian American leaders in particular, because this was happening to an Asian American woman. Um, and this was something that was reported on internationally. And it started creating these connections of folks that could see themselves in the story. And this was interesting. And I bring this up because the, the, the state being Indiana really matters because the only other case um, that has a similar prosecution for something like this in Indiana was also a woman of Asian descent. Um, mm. The only other case, and that was the case of uh, Bebe Shui, um, who was an immigrant from China. Um, and a few years before Pervi Patel's case, she was prosecuted um, for attempted feticide for um, trying to die by suicide while pregnant. Um, wow. So she survived and had given birth to a premature uh, baby who did not survive and was... Uh, and passed soon after um, her attempt, uh, her suicide attempt. So on top of that loss, on top of the mental health struggles that she was experiencing, she was then charged with a crime, right? Um, and I mentioned these two things because it, it, it shows one, the racial choices that are made by prosecutors about yeah. who they go after. And two, particularly uh, Bebe Shui's case goes to show targeting um, behaviors of prosecutions of vulnerable people, right? Um, and it's a cycle that we continue to see when people are pregnant and they're criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes, whether intended or not intended. Mm -hmm. So that gets us to what happened with Marche Jones. And this is a gigantic outrage because it, it was an absolutely unfathomable prosecution, even under black letter law. The law did not allow them to prosecute um, Marche Jones for the crime that they were attempting to prosecute her for. Mm -hmm. um, but what's important, I think, to point out here is that 
we've seen prosecutions that treat pregnant people as the bad guy in their pregnancies, right? Like those fetal harm laws, the intent was supposed to protect pregnant people from outside forces. And it literally had an exception that says, this law cannot be used to prosecute a pregnant person. Mm -hmm. So it was unfathomable from the get-go to be able to use this law to prosecute her, right? And I think many activists, many lawyers, when they saw this case come up, they were like, well, it's gonna go away. But But there are consequences just from being arrested, right? There are, the collateral consequences of like being away from your family, being locked up, the trauma of being put in handcuffs, the trauma of going through central booking. And then you compound that with your face being everywhere, mm. your mugshot getting published everywhere, your story, your life, this horrible thing that happened to you that was done to you public display. is on public display. It's being talked about by this pundit on this channel and that pundit on this channel. And radio stations are having call in. Who do you think was in the wrong? Right. This is now one of the worst days of your life has become a joke to some people and fodder for other people. Mm-hmm for something that was never an allowable prosecution in the first place, right? And also on top of it, there's the stigma of abortion in the first place. There's the stigma of what happens when a pregnant person doesn't quote unquote behave the right way um, that leads to uh, even an unintended pregnancy outcome, which is uh, presumably what we saw in Ms. Jones's case. Even when we're talking about unintended pregnancy outcomes, we don't realize that even when we put it, you know, in the context of like, abortion versus unintended pregnancy outcomes. When we're talking about abortion, abortion is legal. Abortion is safe. I've heard so many doctors say that abortion is as safe as taking birth control, right? Because it's as long as people have been getting pregnant, there have been people that have decided, you know what, I don't want to be pregnant. And folks have been terminating their pregnancy so long as folks have been carrying them all the way through. So we have these ideas of of what motherhood looks like and what parenting looks like when someone is pregnant, they're automatically the mother. So we can even talk about these um, gendered rules that we have about pregnancy, these transphobic rules we have about pregnancy, but this idea of mothers as reproducers, as like hosts and not individual people, people. yeah, that have autonomy over their body and their decisions and their choices. It's, it, it's these per- pervasive thoughts that lead us to a world where criminalizing pregnant people feels normal. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we're battling against. Also on this episode, we have uh, Robin Marty, who's the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. Um, and she was talking about how to self-manage one's own abortion with medication. Um, however, taking matters into one's own hands may not be an equally safe option for all abortion patients, legally speaking. We got into this a little bit before, but I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit more. Um, how are these laws going to be enforced differently against different people? For example, wealthy versus poor people, women of color versus white women, etc. So laws are not enforced equally no matter what. For any sections of our society, right? right? Um, That's the reality of criminalization. The reality of criminalization is we live in a system that is steeped in white supremacy, that's steeped in sexism, that's steeped in racism. Um, And the way that our criminal justice system works right now is that it it follows those well-written paths, right? Um, but I want to balance that by saying that 
that folks don't necessarily make their decision based on the likelihood of criminalization. Not everyone looks to something to say, well, if it's illegal, that is the main um, the main choice factor of can I do this versus can I not do right. this. Now, th that being said, um, I encourage everyone that is listening to this, that is living in a state that's like, I don't know if I am legally allowed to do this. I don't know the law around this to reach out to us. We have a helpline. Uh, it's reprolegalhelpline.org. And hopefully it's gonna be in the description um, section of this to reach out to find out, hey, like we get questions all the time. Is it legal in my state? Um, what's going on with medication? <laughs> can, I, can I do this with medications? Um, so I, I encourage folks to come and reach out and get that information specific to their state. That being said, um, when we're talking about like criminalization through an intersectional lens, there is the reality that there are communities that are over-policed more than other communities. That, but that does not mean, I think there's this balance that we need to strike where um, we can let people know what the legal risks are and let, like empower folks to activate their rights um, because access to those rights differs depending on where someone lives, depending on um, the intersections of their identity that they know, they can know what their proximity to policing, to criminalization is better than we can as someone getting limited information. But uh, that doesn't mean that someone should not be able to do the thing that they think is best for them. Right. Um, and I, I can't tell you like in the amorphous way, like, is it legal in this state under these specific circumstances, unless I know the state and the specific circumstances. But I think when we're talking also about self-managed abortion, it's important to talk about the full spectrum of self-managed abortion because even as we're talking about self-managed abortion, there's this tendency to only think about it in terms of medication abortion. And you, and folks have been terminating pregnancies before misoprostol and, and mifepristone existed. Um, there are folks that might want to terminate their pregnancy using um, herbalist uh, things that they've been doing in their cultures for forever, right? There are folks that might want to, you know, do it, um, do it in different ways that don't involve medication abortion. And I mm -hmm. think that while we're talking about normalizing um, being able to terminate one's own pregnancy, we shouldn't lean towards the ends that that says that this method is the only right method in a way that's silently saying it is okay to criminalize the other methods. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to talk about that um, as a whole, that no one should be criminalized ever for any of their pregnancy outcomes under any circumstances. Absolutely. And someone might say, any circumstances you've got? Yes, any <laughs> circumstances. No one should be criminalized um, for their pregnancy outcomes. So again, if you are really curious, if you actually want to self-manage your abortion and you just want to know, hey, realistically speaking, what are the laws in my state? Reach out to us. We have legal information. We will let you know if you need to get hooked up with a lawyer because you think, you know what, I think I might be closer to criminalization than the average uh, the average person in my community, or even I'm just scared and I want to talk to a lawyer, reach out to us. We'll do our best to connect you with one. Amazing. Yeah, we will definitely put the information in the description of this episode. Um, cool. Moving right along. So most people have heard of Roe v. Wade. 
Um, but many don't realize that there have been several Supreme Court decisions since then that have changed the standard around abortion. Um, can you talk about that development and how it's made it easier for anti-abortion laws to be passed? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, this is right around that time where everyone should be taking a deep breath. <laughs> Glass um, of wine, whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, roll your shoulders back. You know, stretch. Unclench. Um, so Roe v. Wade, 1973. Um, so the premise of that law, not that law, the premise of that case was um, based on privacy rights, right? Um, right after Roe v. Wade, you get the Hyde Amendment. Um, the Hyde Amendment, in essence, prohibited and still does um, federal Medicaid coverage in nearly all abortions. So this happens, and you get a whole bunch of activists that are saying, wait, this is messed up. This basically forecloses poor people that rely on Medicaid funds from being able to access abortion. Right. This goes through the process, ends up right back in front of the Supreme Court in 1980, and that case is a case called Harris v. McRae. Um, and flashing back to the very beginning of this, it was like one of our strategic initiatives is overturning Harris v. McRae, and this is why. Because the case, um, Harris v. McRae, only, what, seven years after Roe, um, in that case, the Supreme Court upholds the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment, that same amendment that was like, no Medicaid funds for abortions, right? Um, and this is by a slim majority, and says that even though the state can't place an undue burden, an undue obstacle um, in the path of someone's seat, well, I should not say burden, that has a specific thing, an undue obstacle in the path of someone seeking an abortion, it doesn't need to remove obstacles, right? Um, the dissent had some really frank language about how the Hyde ban on the right to abortion for low-income people, um, it banned the right to abortion for low-income people who were, by a large part, women of color um, who were seeking abortions. So in essence, what you're doing is foreclosing an entire section of the population from being able to get an abortion using Medicaid. And mm -hmm. you qualify for Medicaid because you need Medicaid, right? right? So we're talking about that in 1980. So then you get to 1992, um, and that case is called Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, woof. So in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court set up abortion as something that's distinct from other constitutional rights. And in essence, it gave states the ability to regulate pre-viability abortion. In Casey, um, the court basically said that the states now have the ability to regulate pre-viability abortions as long as the regulation did not, quote unquote, unduly burden the abortion right. What does that mean? Okay. So that means that a state is not supposed to put a substantial obstacle in the path of the person who needs an abortion. So what does that mean yeah right like that meant nothing <laughs> it meant nothing because um, super vague because between 1992 and the case that i'll talk about right after which um was in 2016 there were a whole bunch of burdensome burdensome regulations that were allowed by the courts so 
Things like waiting periods um, between 48 and 72 hours. There were scripts that doctors um, were forced to read to their patients that had nothing to do um, with the safety and efficacy of the procedure. Um, forced ultrasounds that folks had to go through that had nothing to do um, not with, backed by science. Not backed by science. The doctors then say, we need this. It, it was something that was designed by lawmakers to put more restrictions on that abortion right, right? right? And it also made it harder for clinics to provide abortions because there were so many hurdles and hoops that they had to jump through. Um, and then in 2016, you get whole women's health. Um, so whole women's health v. Helderstead, S-T-E-D-T, um, so that 2016 case, the court said that that standard that we talked about, that um, substantial obstacle, not allowed to put a substantial obstacle, um, that standard had meaning. Um, so if the state, which makes the law, was going to justify a regulation by claiming it is trying to protect the women's health, then the regulation had to actually protect the woman's health. Right. Now, think about this. It, it took us from 1992 to 2016 to get that clarifying point. So in essence, what was happening beforehand, the state could make a law and say, well, this is to protect the woman's health, mm -hmm. period. And that was the end of the conversation. Wow. Right? Even if a doctor was like, but the forced ultrasounds, like, we don't need that, but it's to protect the woman's health. So now with, um, with this case that came out of the courts from Texas, um, because what was happening in Texas, the regulations that they were placing on abortions basically would have shut down um, most of the clinics in the state of Texas. So once that happened, it gave activists and you know advocates and lawyers ground to stand on to be able to fight against some of the restrictions. Thinking about that and kind of the landscape of where we are, you would think that after whole women's health, what it does actually is strengthen the abortion right, right? Because it puts um, more of an onus on lawmakers to actually have the science to back up the laws that they're making. Mm -hmm. And then we find ourselves in our current um, legal landscape of everything that's going on. Yeah, let's get into that right now. So for folks who have only read headlines but haven't really delved into the state of what's really going on with abortion bans in the U.S., can you give us kind of like a rundown of the current situation? Who's involved? Like what exactly is banned? And what does that mean right now and for the near future in the next couple of months? Okay, so this one is actually pretty easy. Nothing is banned. Um, because none of these laws that have been passed, um, these different bans at different uh, periods of gestation are actually in effect. So I think the first state to try this, um, at least in recent memory, to try this early in pregnancy ban was the state of Kentucky. So Kentucky's ban said six weeks. And I'll just run down through the states. Alabama's is probably the most restrictive because it's at the point of conception, zero weeks. Um, Arkansas has an 18-week ban. Georgia, six weeks. Um, Kentucky, I said six, six weeks. Louisiana, six weeks. Michigan, six weeks. Missouri, eight weeks. And Utah also has an 18-week ban. So None of these laws are currently in effect. Um, they're all currently being fought tooth and nail by a variety of attorneys. And abortion is still legal 
in those states and Everywhere. every other state. Abortion is still legal. If you want to go Let's again, say it again. Abortion, abortion is, is legal. It is legal. And I think one of the strongest things that's been happening with um, the coverage that we get on these bans is a lot of disinformation, right? So it's this really bold disinformation campaign that's working overtime to convince people that you can't get an abortion if you want one or need one, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, Scare tactics. Absolutely. So, you know, colloquial, colloquially hearing from folks that are at abortion funds, hearing back from people saying, well, can I still go to my appointment? Mm -hmm. Or calling, um, calling their doctors to say, hey, I think I need to cancel because I'm not allowed to do this. It's implying that same amount of like, legitimacy to these scare tactics by saying, well, you know, anywhere, anytime now, to try to galvanize folks into into doing the work where I, I think for me personally, that giving legitimacy to those things harms more than helps right. because what everyone should be shouting from the rooftops is that abortion is legal. Mm -hmm. You can still get an abortion. If you have questions about your abortion, here are the people that you can call. If you need help paying for your abortion, here are the people that you can call. If you want to self-manage your abortion, here are the people that you can call because I, I think what folks are really thirsty for is not fear, but information. What it does serve though, that kind of like, this is the possibility of where things would go, I think has galvanized folks that would have otherwise remained silent that, you know, wait for where do the chips fall before they get on board? I think it's galvanized some of those people to do things like donate to their local abortion fund, you know, volunteer to be an escort at a clinic mm -hmm. to, start talking about abortion at their dinner table, all these types of like normalizing behaviors that we need to see to see a culture shift in our society. Mm -hmm. I think that might be the positive aspect, right? Totally. But yeah, totally what you said in terms of it being good because it like pushes people to like actually stand up and do something about it. But the bad is that like people who read that maybe are afraid to like actually like seek the services that they yeah. may need. Yeah. Very double-edged sword. Right. What advice do you have for folks who want to help make abortion safe and accessible for all, even if their access to abortion isn't threatened? So like a lot of the listeners of this podcast are from like California and New York where like abortion clinics are plentiful and abortion typically, right, in, in Northern California and in, in New York City, I would claim. Um, but like what do people do? What What is like a top three like action item list that Evka is going to give to everybody? Um, okay. So I, I just want to point out one thing. Um, just because a state has laws that are friendly to abortion does not mean that abortion is accessible. True. Um, I think even in New York state, there are, past the state, in the boroughs, right? Like if different people have different proximity to accessible. Um, so even in the states where you're like, well, we have, you can go to Planned Parenthood, we have this um, independent clinic here and there. I, I, one of the things that I would recommend is still think about how can you improve access in the state where you live? So giving a concrete example, right? Um, there's a lot of this political energy that we're expelling on talking about bans, but not the similar political energy on talking about restrictions. So um, 
even if you live in a state where there's not a 48 to 72 hour like waiting period or something like that, still think about what is access for someone that is undocumented, right? And needs to, or access for someone that has distrust um, with the medical system. What is access for someone that wants to get the pills, but don't know where they can go to get them? And start really examining that feeling that we get sometimes when we think, well, things are pretty good here, or it's worse in other places. And this feeling of doneness, like we can put this aside and focus on this other thing. Um, I think one of the first things that I, I would encourage folks that are in um, states that have more protections in the law, um, more clinic access is to think about, well, if I imagine the ideal future of anyone that wants to get their abortion can get one and they can do so in a way that is safe and effective, what needs to exist for us to get there? Mm -hmm. And then take a look at your state and say, are we there yet? And I think the answer for everyone is going to be no. So once you examine kind of what is the ideal for me? Are we there yet? And you see that gap between where you are um, and where you want to be. It, it should galvanize you to do the work across our nation and also in your own backyard, right? Um, so one of the ways to do that is hook up with and make community, man. Like there are so many people that feel the way that you do. You are not alone in this. You're not the only one that's pissed off. You're not the only one that's enraged or crying about it. Or and confused. Or confused, absolutely. And there are communities of folks that already exist. Um, I think sometimes we end up with like a lot of well-meaning people, um, particularly well-meaning people from privileged communities, whether that privilege being like, you're white, you're educated, you have money, like whatever that privilege that you have, like this, I want to save and I want to do the thing. Um, it's very likely that the thing that you want to do already exists and you are better off putting your resources mm. and your energy into something that someone has already built to support right. and not always for the purpose of leading and being in charge of the thing. So find your community and see how you can help there. Um, Two, donate to your local abortion funds. Like in states, there, you know, abortion funds are serving and doing the hefty lifting work of helping folks that um, don't have the money that they need to access abortion being able to access them. Abortion funds, for example, in New York State are having the energy and, you know, providing funds to get people to get here. Um, to get their late-term abortion or their whatever-term abortion because it's not accessible in the states surrounding them. And abortion funds do a lot more than just abortions. There are abortion funds that do like um, health support for trans folks and gender non-conforming folks. So find your abortion fund, give them some money, go to the bullathon. Um, if you can't give them some money, retweet their things so your friends with money can give them some money. Um, because I know for me, it depends on what week, whether or not <laughs> I have money, how close we are to rent having just been paid. So can certainly put energy like towards raising funds for folks that need it. Um, and the third, I think relatively easy, but hard thing is start talking about abortions everywhere, like all the time with all of your friends. Um, not saying like, don't get into the knockout drag out fights, but I think normalizing the idea of abortion as healthcare, like any other thing is healthcare, um, 
does a lot to erase the stigma that upholds criminalization, mm. um, that upholds this idea of like being embarrassed or shamed or whatever about making your health decisions, right? No one, I think, shames anyone for going to the doctor when they feel sick, right? No one shames anyone for seeking the advice of a medical professional. And if we start thinking about abortion care as healthcare, everywhere, all the time. I think that goes a long way with doing a big culture shift, which is quite honestly what we're going to need to win this fight. Did you know that one out of every three women identifying individuals have reported having painful sex within the last 90 days? There are so many reasons why people can experience this type of pain. And there's an incredible tool out there that can help. Meet Millie. Millie is a vaginal dilator for people with vaginas who have painful intercourse. Millie's single insertion, one millimeter at a time expansion puts the user in control. It can relieve physical pain from conditions like vaginismus, endometriosis, fibroids, cysts, IBS, surgery, chemotherapy, and emotional pain like anxiety, depression, and stress. Learn more about why so many women are choosing Millie at www.milliemedical.com. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. Of and course. And saying those sweet things to me. Um, <laughs> my name is Amelia Bono, and I am the co-founder of Shout Your Abortion. Um, yeah. Is that all? That's all. That's perfect. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, can you tell us all about the, the founding of Shout Your Abortion and kind of your, your background and your story? Yeah, totally. So I live in Seattle, Washington. I, um, at the time that, so of course this, the answer to this question begins with me having an abortion, um, right. which happened at, which happened in 2014. Um, and at the time I was in grad school studying, um, psychology and I was tending bar and sort of doing a lot of art stuff. And, um, I found myself pregnant. I, knew immediately that I did not want to have a child at all. Like, there was no decision process whatsoever. It was like, oh, I'm pregnant. Okay, I'm having an abortion. Mm-hmm. And that just, like, you know, I think that many of us who can get pregnant grow up, like, imagining that scenario and feeling like it's, like, the worst possible nightmare. But for me, it was like, okay, I got this. Um, and I, I felt that way because I knew that I was going to be able to go like six blocks away from my apartment to the Planned Parenthood on Madison Avenue. And I'd been going there since, I think since I was a teenager, at least for 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that the people there were going to take great care of me like they always had. And I knew that, you know, there were no barriers to my access, like waiting periods or financial barriers. Um, and I also knew that, like, I'm in a really pro-choice, you know, part of the country and and also, like, my community itself is, like, very progressive and radical and down with abortion. So I knew I was going to be able to talk about my experience as much as I wanted to. And I kind mm-hmm. of knew that I was going to want to talk about it because I like to talk about everything with the people close to me. So anyway, I, 
yeah, it's just like how to have a real relationship. You know, I wouldn't want to skip the big stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went and I had my abortion and it was, as I thought it would be, um, a really empowering experience. It just felt super, super grateful to be cared for by all of the people that, that were there in that clinic and everyone that was in the clinic was having an abortion. That's the only procedure that happens there on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like really like connected to everyone that was in there because everyone was either having an abortion or helping people have abortions. And I was just like, whoa, this is like this ancient thing that women do for each other. Um, and it felt just kind of, it just made me feel immense gratitude. So about, and, and, you know, also I just, I was, I was sure that I wanted to do this. And I also just like truly didn't feel guilt or shame about it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I really felt like the total absence of negative emotions about making this choice or the experience itself. Mm -hmm. And the common narrative is like, Oh, you're going to feel guilty and shameful. Yes, exactly. And I, I knew at the time that like the experience that I'd had was not one that I'd really heard described in like, media or just like in the cultural narrative about what it's like to have an abortion. And I was kind of like, huh. (laughs) Um, And so then fast forward to about a year later um, when a bunch of anti-choice terrorists um, created a series of videos that purported to show Planned Parenthood like illegally selling fetal tissue on the black market. And Mm -hmm. um, it like, you know, kicked off this huge effort to defund Planned Parenthood for the first time. And I was super, super pissed. And I, like, couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop talking about it in school, in the bar. And I wasn't in those conversations, like, being like, yeah, and I had an abortion a year ago at Planned Parenthood, and it was actually a wonderful experience as far as, like, medical stuff goes. I was so well cared for. Like, this is not what abortion is. This is not what Planned Parenthood is. And I didn't feel like anyone was like standing up for them on the grounds of like, because they do abortion. It was, Mm -hmm. everyone was saying like, Hey, they also do STI screenings and um, provide birth control. But it, but it was, it felt like the entire response to those attacks was minimizing abortion. Um, so one day, I just sort of, like, uh, it was the day that the House of Representatives voted to defund Planned Parenthood for the first time, and I just kind of lost it, and I wrote a status update on Facebook that said, hi, guys, I had an abortion at Planned Parenthood about a year ago, and I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm not ashamed. Um, the experience left me with a profound sense of gratitude and I'm telling you this today because I think that the anti-choice movement is relying on silence from pro-choice people who have had abortions, and I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. I hit post, and I walked out the door, and I was kind of like, <laughs> I was kind of like, ha ha ha, that was, that was, I'm going to make a splash on the internet today. Right. Um, <laughs> and I texted a screenshot of my status update to my dear friend Lindy West, who is an incredible um, feminist author and all sorts of other things. And she already had a large platform at that time, but which has grown exponentially since then. 
Um, and Lindy put a screenshot of my status on Twitter and added the hashtag shout your abortion. And it pretty much immediately it started to go viral. And um, within a couple of days, it had been used like 250,000 times by oh my God. people all over the world, primarily in the United States, um, sharing their abortion stories, often for the first time. And the stories were everything, everything you can imagine from really heartbreaking situations, you know, involving like wanted pregnancies and fetal abnormalities um, to, you know, rape and incest to very young people to very old folks who had never, who had like never, ever spoken about this for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of folks like myself who were just like, yeah, like, I'm really, really glad that I was able to do this. And it wasn't that big of a deal, aside from the fact that um, if, I wa- if I didn't have that abortion, I would have had a baby. So I'm really glad it happened. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was the genesis of what has now evolved into, like, a full-fledged movement and a legit organization. And, and that was happening pretty much immediately. There, it wasn't just... Um, online, there was like a lot of immediately people. Um, so here in my in my community in Seattle, like we started having button making parties and dance parties and doing graffiti and making clothes. And people were doing this kind of stuff all over the country. Like it kicked, it shook loose this um, sort of need to break this silence and find ways to talk about this and talk about it in public, and um, it's, never, it's never let up. And so now, um, four years later, we are an organization that um, works to create places in art and media and real-life events for people to talk about their abortions and for people to talk about abortion, not just those who have had them. Um, and it looks all sorts of different ways. Yeah, all that sounds... Um so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, and I wonder, what have you all been up to lately, and what do you overall kind of plan to achieve in the coming years? So, um, the biggest project we have been working on in the last year or so um, is the production of our very first book, which is amazing. Called... <laughs> it is amazing, and I'm so excited to send you one. Yay. It's, called Shout, <laughs> it's called Shout Your Abortion because, duh. Um, and it's this really, um, like, I've never seen anything like it because it's, um, it's like an art book in a certain kind of way, but it's also um, full of stories. So it's, it's got 43 abortion stories from people all over the country. Um, we sent a photographer named Elizabeth Rudge out to photograph people, like, in their homes in, like, I think eight different states. Um, and there are the subjects range from an age from uh, 17 to 85. There are folks who had abortions, um, which were, like, totally heartbreaking and wanted pregnancies. There are folks who have had multiple abortions. There are sex workers. There are Catholics. There are people all over the gender spectrum and of just a really wide range of socioeconomic status and race. And um, it's just incredible. And it's also um, not only stories, but it's like kind of this creative 
action guide because um, the second half of the book is like examples of all of these different projects that we've done all over the country. And a lot of them are templates that people can use um, that we've created. So there's like button making templates and like posters and we've done a lot of projecting on the outside of buildings. Like we projected on the side of Trump Tower a few months ago, uh, fuck your wall and um, abortion is normal. We projected mm. on the Supreme, we projected abortion is freedom on the Supreme Court building um, on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Um, and there's like a fashion section because we be making clothes and beautiful <laughs> garments that are like, yeah. And, and um, there are also interviews with abortion providers. Um, all wow, of whom so are, comprehensive. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's so great. I can't wait for you to see it. And also we got a grant from the abortion conversations project and we have, now sent the, the book to over 250 abortion clinics to sit in their waiting and recovery rooms. Oh, that's incredible. So, so, like, literally thousands of people are going to see this book before they or after they have their abortions. And, and like, I just, like, get choked up every time I <laughs> think about it because I just truly believe that... Um, it has, it will have the power to like make people know that there is an alternative to like silence and shame and self-hatred. And it's just this really beautiful book full of these strong ass people that are just smiling and being proud of who they are and that their abortions are a part of that. And that's okay. And, um, you know, I think it could act as like stigma intervention to some degree and maybe like help people not ever feel that shit and let alone not feel it for like decades and seep into their lives in all sorts of fucked up ways that they don't sort of identify until, until they start to. And maybe it's already caused a lot of damage at that point. Mm. Um, yeah. So powerful. So yeah. The, the book is rad. It's, it can be, purchased on our website, uh, shoutyourabortion.com. And our website also is a place where folks can go add their abortion stories in text or video. Um, and we're also starting to get submissions from men and partners who have gotten folks pregnant, which I think is a really, really important sort of way that, that the movement is expanding. And I think that there's, there's like been a lot of talk about it culturally, um, especially after, after Busy Phillips hashtag you know me blew up a few months ago and there was like this uh, there was like another wave of people like telling their abortion stories and then afterwards a lot of people were like you know what where are the men in this conversation but in terms of like what we are trying to do we're not like giving people instructions about how to talk about their abortions or how to start you know, organizing in their community in a way that, like, opens up space for people to talk about this. We're just giving people tools that they can, like, use however makes sense to them because the way that this conversation works is so different all over the country and, you know, even within, like, one city, like, different cultures and faith groups. And, like, everybody has a di different way. There's, there's just 
the way that we're going to talk about abortion on Capitol Hill is not the same as it's going to be in Birmingham. It's not the same right. that it's going to be like in the Bronx. And everybody's just got to sort of create this change for themselves. You know, I think that it's different in the way that people want to approach the issue. It's super different in the way that, like, it feels to have an abortion in those places. You know, like, right. my abortion experience was, like, really cushy um, mm-hmm. because of who I am and where I live. And the fact that I had such a an empowering experience um, is, you know, it's, it's pretty anomalous in terms of, like, what it, what it feels like for, for most people in this country to seek out a, abortion care. You know, totally. like, there were no throngs of protesters. I did not have to drive. I literally could have walked myself there and home if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think in part my desire to be vocal about my experience was like realizing how lucky I am and wishing that more folks could have access to the kind of experience that I had and, and feeling really strongly that like the reason why that's not happening is because Abortion stigma has has created a, a discursive and political climate um, where even though 73% of Americans support Roe versus Wade, we're just getting legislatively our asses handed to us. Right. We're like this silent majority that doesn't know how to stand up and fight for what we what we need and what you know and our constitutional right and and so. Like, I, I think that, um, you know, it's just unreasonable to expect just abortion legislation and truly, like, reproductive freedom for all in a country where the vast majority of people who have abortions are really uncomfortable talking about them. And, mm-hmm. and many, many people who support abortion rights are really uncomfortable doing so publicly. And that means that there's no pressure on our, our law, or not no pressure, but there's not nearly enough pressure on our on our lawmakers to make laws that actually reflect our values and our needs. Um, you know, one in four people who can get pregnant will have an abortion at some point. We need abortions. We want abortions. And and yet we're seeing this unprecedented um, regression on on our ability to have have self determined lives. Um, because we have access to to this procedure, those like although we should all be absolutely horrified by um, by abor- these abortion bans, these really extreme laws that are are happening, abortion is still legal in all fifty states, right? And um, the bans that are are passing are so unconstitutional that it's totally possible, if not probable, that they will be overturned before they're enacted into law. And one thing that I think is really interesting about them is, like, they're so extreme that, you know, some of them do not have exceptions for victims of rape and incest and things of that nature. And I feel like that is a and and they're they're certainly not going like i I think it's very, very unlikely that that a law like that will be enacted. But I also think that that 
that writing and passing laws like that, even if they will be overturned, is a deliberate strategy from the right to, like, force, you know, progressives and the pro-choice movement into this defensive posture where we're saying, look at this, this this law would force this 11-year-old victim of rape to have a child. That is so fucked up. But you know what? It is so fucked up for anyone to be forced to have a child. And totally. it's not a gradient. It's not a, like if you've lost your right to control your own reproductive autonomy, like you have lost everything. It's all and bad. Totally. It's all bad. Like there's no, any abortion ban is extreme. And mm, that's um, a great point. And another like correlated point is that like, I think they do it this way in order to make it so that then when they try to float a bill that's like, or, you know, they try to go for a federal 20-week ban, um, that that seems totally reasonable in comparison. Right, um, exactly. And, like a negotiation tactic. Exactly. And, and, and like, fuck that. I'm, I don't think that we should be negotiating with these people at all mm-hmm. on, on a certain level, like in terms of just like the way that we talk about abortion. Obviously, we have to negotiate, you know, in a, like, legalistic sense and, like, how policy works and everything. But, like, in terms of, like, how we talk about um, what we want, I want universal access to abortion. I want every person in this country to be able to have as many abortions as they want and as they need, and I want the government to pay for it. And mm-hmm. I don't want... <laughs> and I don't want to live in a society where there is, like, compulsory shame and silence and where people who have abortions and work in abortion clinics and support abortion rights feel terrorized by a small, vicious minority of, like, evangelical dipshits who don't (laughs) represent... I love it. ...who don't represent, like, how most people feel at all. The Hyde Amendment is so... Like, if we're not fighting to overturn Hyde, then we're not fighting for reproductive freedom because the Hyde Amendment has made it so that um, abortion is essentially like a class and race privilege from pretty much the very beginning. So we've actually never had, you know, although I think it feels like we're really losing a ton of ground right now and in many ways we are legislatively, We've, we've kind of always lived in, in a country where abortion access is a class privilege to some degree and a race privilege. And I think that like Trump's, you know, election and like everything that's happening around abortion rights feels super shocking. But it's, it's not, you know, if you're someone who lives in Mississippi and is, is poor and and, like, couldn't get to an abortion clinic because it's hundreds of miles away and you had a baby that you didn't want and can't mm-hmm. care for. Like, if that, if that already happened to you, like, then that means that things were already completely broken. Um, so it's not like this is new. You know what I mean? Right. I, mean, I, think, that's, I think that's really important to a, a really important perspective um, because, like, 
ultimately we just have to, I think, create a movement, like, and make sure we're building a movement that is really fighting for everyone, as opposed to pro-choice movements in the past or incarnations of the pro-choice movement that have, have really just kind of been working to secure abortion rights and access for white women of means. You know, like if, if all of those totally. other folks are getting, are getting left behind, then that's what we're doing. And we have to expand that scope. And we have to also talk about the fact that not everyone who has an abortion identifies as a woman. And I think that this, that the issue of abortion has been like framed as a women's issue when in fact it's, I mean, that's just such a limited framing. Abortion is, is fundamentally about like who our society allows to be free and have self-determination and regulating abortion access is just one of many strategies that the right is employing in a much larger project to disenfranchise poor people and people of color. And it's not even about abortion, you know? It's, it's not about, like, it's not about, like, saving babies or whatever. I mean, I think right. it's for, for a few of them, but I think that the vast majority of, like, Republican leadership are seeing this as a way to keep poor people poor and keep white about people limiting in charge of people. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, having those tools and really like knowledge is power, right? So like learning from other people, really like understanding, like you said, I think it's so powerful to learn about like our own internal like struggles and stigmas that we have around abortion. Like if there's a line of like, oh, well, one abortion is fine, but like more than one is yeah. fine, you know, and like really yeah. challenge yourself to think about like, well, no, like abortion is, you know, uh, is healthcare and which kind of leads us into our final question, which is about your recent article that you wrote for the new Republic, which is called don't depoliticize abortion. Um, why Leanna Wen and Planned Parenthood had to part ways. Um, I would love for you to, to share kind of the, the impetus of like why you wanted to write this and what uh, like a, a synopsis of it is about. Yeah. So I've been thinking for a long time about, you know, I think a lot about like how how the pro-choice movement or pro-abortion movement, as I would I, I identify as way more with the the phrase pro-abortion than pro-choice because pro-choice just like doesn't cover it for me. For one thing, like there's no such thing as choice without access, and for another thing, it doesn't you know the phrase doesn't say anything about abortion actually. Um, and I you know I support abortion. I, I want abortion to exist, so I am pro-abortion. I don't just want people to have the choice. I want people to have as many abortions as they need to have, blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, I, I, I like think a lot about how we message stuff on our side, and um, I think that like we have been so beaten down by, by facing this opposition that has this really like monolithic party line where they're like, abortion is murder. People who have abortions are murderers. Doctors mm-hmm. who provide abortions are genocidal serial killers. And okay, there you go. Would you like to have a conversation with me? And it's like really hard to step into that framing without immediately being on the defense. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, so, so the piece in the new Republic, um, is about Leanna Wen's departure from Planned Parenthood. Um, Dr. Wen is a physician and comes from a public health 
background, and she was hired to um, step in to Plan- to what used to be Cecile Richards' role in as president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And they sort of abruptly parted ways um, a couple of weeks ago, and there was... And she like, was like less of, than a year, right? Like, how long was yeah, she was in that position? Yeah, it, it, it was less than a year, and it was, like, pretty messy. Like, she immediately went on Twitter before Planned Parenthood had made a statement and said, like, I just learned that I was, like, fired in a secret meeting by the board. Um, and and her character, characterization of the schism between she and the organization had to do with the way that um, Planned Parenthood frames abortion. And Dr. Wen's perspective is that Planned Parenthood is a healthcare provider and that abortion is healthcare and that speaking about abortion in a totally depoliticized way and just sort of speaking about it as it, as if it is just like, identical to any number of the other um, sexual and reproductive health care services that they provide is the best way to make folks who might be uncomfortable with abortion be comfortable with Planned Parenthood. Mm. And, and um, there are also issues that have sort of come up after I wrote my op-ed that are way more about like her management style. But so like, I think there was like more going on than just that, but, that was like the initial sort of um, public statement from her and people's perception was this is about abortion and about how she wants to talk about it versus where the organization is going. And so I wrote an op-ed in the New Republic that that talks about the reasons why I think that that framing, abortion is healthcare, and really just the attempt to depoliticize abortion is, is a failure to talk about what abortion really is. Um, And, like, you know, this whole idea that, like, abortion is a private medical decision between a woman and her doctor, like, I think that it's, it's, again, it's like a response to an anti-choice movement that has, like, called us murderers and terrorized us into silence. And I think that the idea that it's just this private medical decision that exists between a woman and her doctor. It's like an attempt for, for people to be like, no, this is my choice. It's a personal choice and it doesn't affect anyone else. And no one else gets to like, tell me what to do with my body. Mm-hmm. It's almost implying it's, like silencing, right? It's like, Oh, it's a private. That's, that's right. so private. I mean, that's, that's totally a part of it. Um, and, and the other problem is that like abortion affects absolutely everyone. Mm-hmm. Are like this is not a personal issue, and you know, like we live in a we live in a society that would be unrecognizable without abortion access. All of our communities and our families, and you know, the world we live in has been shaped by who does and who does not have access to abortion. And you know, I think that in some ways, comes from people like Dr. Wen they know this is just healthcare is kind of an attempt to dodge what feels like a pretty morally complex subject that has made, you know, has felt like a third rail to a lot of people. But what I think that our side needs to do is, is like, claim this issue as a moral imperative for all progressives because we can't make any meaningful progress in 
addressing racial or economic inequality or gender inequality in this country without universal access to abortion. And it doesn't really matter, like, like you can totally be, you can see, see abortion as like a morally complex thing on an individual personal level and still see very clearly that morally correct abortion legislation is absolutely black and white. And, and I think that, like, we've missed an attempt to claim the moral high ground that is ours because the other side is, like, you know, has, has made this issue sort of feel like we're fighting over, you know, when life begins. But in actuality, it's like that's, that's a totally subjective personal feeling that we're never going to agree on. Mm-hmm. But what we can agree on is that, like, People deserve to have the same um, ability to have autonomy and and have self-determined lives, and that it's bad if we live in a world where wealthy people are able to buy their freedom and poor people are, you know, left to drown in, in pregnancies that they don't want. Like, so we need to, like, come out swinging more than abortion is health care and say, like, abortion is freedom, you know? Yeah, of course it's healthcare, but it's so much more than that. Abortion is justice. Abortion is, is economic justice, it's racial justice, it's gender justice, and it's an issue that every progressive, regardless of their identity, needs to feel is theirs. Like, this is not a women's issue. It's not a private issue between a woman and her provider. It affects absolutely everyone, and we need to, like, lean way the fuck into it on that, (laughs) in that way. Our creator, producer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, a.k.a. DB. Our assistant producer is Kathy Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Alana Rance. Our sound engineer is Oliver Devone. Our fundraising co-coordinator is Jamie Cooper. And our other fundraising co-coordinator slash content assistant is Callie Cochran. Our music is by Ben Sound and Hook Sounds. Thank you so much to our featured voices, sponsors, and our listeners. Tune in next time.